From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It takes more than half a million dollars to buy a home in Colorado at the median price. An estimated 10,000 Coloradans are experiencing homelessness, and 80,000 are behind on rent. The U.S. Housing Secretary joins us live to talk about what she calls a dire situation. Denver's Mayor Michael Hancock is also wrestling with how to develop better affordable housing. There is not one silver idea that will eradicate homelessness. It is a very complex web of challenges that have to be met with a multi-pronged plan of solutions. That includes helping people get the services they need. We'll ask what he told President Biden about finding solutions, plus creating jobs and implementing clean energy. Then the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum in Colorado Springs is relaunching with new leadership and a summer full of events. In 2012, Fred Harris watched cannabis legalization pass him by from a prison cell here in Colorado. Recreational pot was now legal, but that didn't change anything for him. And it left his teenage son in limbo. I kind of just like consider a person like that dead, like, you know, unfortunately. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. Hear Fred's story on the latest episode of On Something, available wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Housing Secretary Marsha Fudge described the nation's housing situation as dire when she was in Colorado earlier this week. The problem is everywhere, and homelessness is a huge one. Where would you be if you didn't have a place to live? We are in the richest nation in the world. No one should sleep on a street, in a tent, under a bridge, on a bench. No one. Then there are people who are out of jobs and behind on their payments. Plus, rent and home prices are skyrocketing. There is no place in the country today where a person making minimum wage can even afford a two-bedroom apartment. Nowhere. Marsha Fudge joins us now from Washington, D.C. Secretary, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You used the word dire to describe what's going on. Even before the pandemic, your department estimated about 10,000 people in Colorado were experiencing homelessness. The Census Bureau estimates about 80,000 people are behind on rent. One study ranked Colorado among the 10 worst states for housing affordability. How did things get so bad? Well, I think it's a crisis partially of our own making, and I call it a crisis because it is. Uh, HUD just issued a few months back what we call our point in time report. It showed that on any given night in 2019, which we know was pre-COVID, more than 580,000 people were homeless in this country. And I think that it is a crisis. And so COVID has just made the, the, the problem worse. We have homeless veterans on the street who, who has served their nation should not have a place to lay their head. And so it is a crisis, not just in Denver or in Colorado, but across the entire United States. And part of the problem is because we have not invested in low income and moderate housing in a very long time. We have not put the kinds of resources into wraparound services that we should. I mean, because we need to make sure that people who are homeless are not only moved to stable housing, but have the kind of support they need to stay there. So that might mean job training. It may mean health care. It may mean education. There are many things we can do to help people. We just have not done it. President- and so the crisis has gotten worse by the day. 
President Biden's first relief package, the American Rescue Plan, it provided billions in aid for people experiencing homelessness. Can you point to an example of an overall approach to the problem or a specific program that you've seen that might help improve some of these issues that you're pointing to? Well, there are two things I think that every single community should be asking themselves about. One is the emergency rental assistance program, which we know there's about 40 plus billion dollars in that fund alone. We know if we can get those resources through vouchers to the people who need them, we should at least not see an awful lot of people falling off the cliff because they're being evicted or foreclosed upon when we end the moratorium at the end of this month, which means that the resources have to get through the cities and the counties uh, and through the villages where these things are happening. But what we have found is that we need to provide more assistance to make sure that the money gets through because it's there's a clog somewhere. And so we're talking to mayors and governors every day to try to make sure that we can uh, help them at least get caught up. The other major problem, quite frankly, is that we have not invested in building new housing. And so when I was in Denver to hear that the average price of a home in Denver is about 700,000, I was in Boulder and they're saying it's over a million. There is no affordability because there is not enough supply to meet the demand. And so we have to find ways to build new housing. That is the only real answer to this, because what is happening is those people who could afford to build housing can't because the price point is so high. And so they take up the housing of the people who are less fortunate. And it is a vicious cycle that the only thing we can do is build more. And you talk about a clogged system. Are you talking about in terms of difficulty for people who need those resources to apply for the resources? I think it's more uh, difficult for people to understand how to navigate the system and to know what things are available to them. And I'm going to once again just use Denver. Denver has um, not a a lot of, of land available to build new housing. But I'm also not so sure that the various people that are in place to assist are are able to do their jobs. Let's just say that we've given Denver 50 vouchers. I'm just using a number off the top of my head. There are not 50 landlords who are willing to take those vouchers because they can make more money from people who are wealthy or people who have more, you know, better and higher means. And so people who are looking for affordable places to live just can't find it. And how do you solve that kind of disconnect from a federal level? Well, we're doing that in a lot of ways now. We are, uh, the president has, as you know, two parallel pieces of legislation. One obviously is infrastructure where we're talking about doing things like making sure every single household has high-speed internet or broadband, clean water, fixing roads and bridges, the standard kinds of infrastructure. And then there's the Build Back Better plan, which is, which is asking for uh, as much as $300 billion to build 2 million new housing units. We are looking at how we can give incentives for people to build. So we are increasing the, uh, the value of low-income housing tax credits. We are looking at how we provide resources through the Housing Trust Fund so that even when those homes are built, we can bridge the gap between what a person who is just 
middle income can afford and what it costs to build. So we are working on the problem, but it's going to take all of us to do it because there are zoning issues and planning issues that we have to get through. There are land issues that we have to get through, and that's not a federal government problem. Those are things that are done by the local community. So we need local communities to help, and we need the federal government to work with them. You know, encampments in cities, folks who are putting up tents in public spaces, it makes homelessness very visible. As the housing secretary, what are your personal reflections when you see folks seeking shelter this way? I'm sad, quite frankly. Um, I mean, there are times when it really does literally bring me to tears to see what goes on in the richest nation in the world. There is no reason that we should not be able to house people in need. Now, I do know that every single person who is homeless or at risk of being homeless has a different situation. I mean, there's no cookie cutter answer for any of it, but what we do know, we know where to find people, we know how to assess what their situation is and to then help. We just have not put the resources to it that we should have, but right now the resources are there. Through the rescue plan that the president ushered through the Congress, Again, I say there's $10 billion sitting there waiting for continuums of care, waiting for cities, waiting for counties to move that money in a direction that is going to get people off the street into safe homes. Give you some examples. I'm in Washington, D.C. They're talking about building new housing that is not congregate, but, you know, maybe small units that we can move people into. In Los Angeles, they're buying up motels and hotels and creating one bedroom kinds of places for people to live and not in a shelter type of an environment. There are many ways to do it. In Colorado, It's up to the local community to determine how, but we have the resources. And in Colorado, in some places, including Denver, officials conduct sweeps. They come in and force campers to relocate. I hear you talking about building new housing. But what are your thoughts on that policy as people await that kind of new housing? Well, you know, I don't really know much about the policy. Um, But what I do know is that every single person in this country, no matter their status or no matter their economic standing, should be treated with dignity and with respect. Um, I know that there are laws that have to be followed, and I do believe people should should live and work within the confines of the law. I as well know that all of us in this country have a responsibility to take care of those people who need us most. And so I don't know the policy, but I would suggest that we need to find ways so that we don't have to have these encampments. We need to find places, whether it be temporary or permanent, but we need to put people in a position where they are safely housed and, and don't have to stay in a tent. Let's talk about the pandemic and the housing crisis a little more. A federal moratorium on evictions is scheduled to expire at the end of July. We mentioned that the Census Bureau estimates about 80,000 Coloradans are behind on their rent. The state has some new laws that will slow down the eviction process and help folks who are behind on their payments. But why not extend the moratorium for a while? Well, I think it can't go on forever. Uh, and and, And we have come to the decision that As of July 30th, there is more than $40 billion in the system to make sure that we can bring people current with their rents or their mortgages. Uh, It is just a matter of being sure that we can get the money through the system because you have to realize that people, landlords, they need their resources too. Um, That people who are in the situation that they need the kind of forbearance and assistance that we are giving them uh, have those resources. We cannot. Uh, at this point, continue to move forward with 
a moratorium with the kind of resources that are available. So what we're asking is for every community to make sure that they use their share of the resources, their share of the vouchers, to be sure it gets into the hands of people who need it right away. Uh, I think that ultimately um, we have to look at all sides of the situation. So not only the renters, but also the landlords. And so we believe that July 30th is the proper time uh, to make sure that all of the resources get into the right hands. Before we go, I also want to ask you about a particular problem in Colorado resort areas right now. And I believe this happens in similar areas around the country where workers can't afford to live where they work. They end up with longer commutes or give up the job and employers end up without the workers they need. Are there specific solutions you'd suggest in those communities? Well, I would suggest that the the people who need workers impress upon their elected officials, their mayors, their council people, their state people, that they need to find more ways to build low income and moderate housing. Because if they don't, the situation is not going to get better. It is going to get worse. Uh, We know that the, the jobs plan that the president has been talking about does create millions of construction jobs, jobs on rail, jobs on roads. But people have to be committed to helping other people. You Mm. can't say that I live in an exclusive community and I can't get people the kind of transportation to get there and pay them enough money in wages to get there and make it profitable for them or at least affordable. Mm -hmm. It is a problem that is looking for a solution that we know what the solution is. Secretary Fudge, thank you for joining us. Marsha Fudge is the U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. She's a former U.S. Congresswoman from Ohio. Let's continue the conversation about affordable housing now with Denver Mayor Michael Hancock. He, along with mayors from cities across the U.S., met with President Joe Biden Wednesday. They sent a letter to congressional leaders in support of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Framework Bill, which includes investment in transportation, clean energy, and jobs. Mayor Hancock, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. You're in Washington, D.C. with the U.S. Conference of Mayors. What was your specific message to the president about what's needed in Denver and Colorado? We had a great conversation with the president and vice president and members of his cabinet today. Uh, We talked about the Build Back Better piece of legislation that the president has proposed sitting in front of Congress and how critical it is that that piece of legislation gets passed. It makes absolute critical investments that people in Denver have uh, voted continuously to invest in. Um, but quite frankly, without the federal government, we can only make incremental uh, impacts. And so this bill will allow us to expedite a lot of those uh, investments in critical and crumbling uh, transportation infrastructure, the proliferation of Wi-Fi, the access toward uh, sources of energy, affordable housing and infrastructure, making about $300 billion of, in, in housing infrastructure in uh, investments throughout the nation. So there's a lot there for us to chew on and a lot of great benefit for the people of Denver. Right, a lot in this legislation. What kind of response did you get from the president about the things specifically you said the Denver and Colorado needed? You know, we had a good conversation about how do we marry the need for housing and transit. So I really raised the example anecdotally of, uh, you know, the um, Sun Valley community, for example, that someone can uh, live in decent, affordable housing, come down out of their unit, down the elevator, walk out the back door and they get on a light rail train and go to a rare campus. Now we've really transformed lives where we are making a difference uh, because we are providing not only the housing and the transit, but also access to all the amenities necessary to live a, you know, a preferred quality of life or standard of living. So uh, we had a very good conversation about that. And, and 
He absolutely got it and, and appreciated it. And so that's exactly what our bill is uh, designed to do, and that is to build the ladders of opportunity. And, you know, for the first time ever, the average price of a single-family detached home in Metro Denver topped $700,000 last month. So what do you see as the most pressing need for people to even achieve the affordable housing piece of that vision? Well, I, I think this bill, again, goes straight to the heart of that. One is how do we prepare people to compete in this new economy uh, with the right skills, you know, not only give them um, a job, but a career. Um, and so this bill is, has a great deal of uh, uh, workforce development uh, opportunities, or at least money to create workforce opportunities. And as we make these investments, we are creating potential, uh, the economic impact of 19 million jobs across this country being created. Uh, these are wonderfully prevailing wage uh, jobs, again, that move people from low income or poverty uh, way of life to middle class. And the president recognizes that coming from his experience, he talks about this a lot. How do we use what we're doing an opportunity to not only address the critical needs that people have, but create employment opportunities that lift them uh, up economically. And so that's what this bill will do. And that's exciting because if we make these investments, we're going to see investments that we've not seen in this country in decades. And we kind of talk about these kind of infrastructure um, issues without talking about the crisis of homelessness. Can the federal government help directly with services for people experiencing homelessness beyond buying or helping renovate hotels into housing? Well, that's part of it. Job training is another part of it. Access to the human services uh, such as mental health and expansion of mental health services is also critically important. Drug and alcohol addiction is also critically important, all of which this bill will help us to do uh, even more. uh, But buying those hotels and motels is critical. Helping to invest in shelters and access affordable housing are all critical infrastructure that we need to address affordable housing. I always say this, there is not one silver idea that will eradicate homelessness. It is a very complex web of challenges that have to be met with a multi-pronged plan of solutions. And so having the federal government lean in with resources only will help us make more accessible those critical services that we need to get to the people uh, who find themselves on shelter in our city. One of those plans the city is trying, Denver is launching a pilot program to give a group of civilians the power to issue citations to people violating city ordinances like camping bans. Critics have said that can make it even harder for people to get stable housing if they're also juggling more fines and court dates. What's the thinking behind this and how it'll tie into that kind of infrastructure? Well, I think you need to look at the anatomy of the services that we provide um, in terms of people who are on shelter in our city. So let's take, for example, uh, the civilian corps that will be on the street. I mean, the objective is not just to enforce the camping ban in the city of Denver. It's a lot of the right away, but if they come in contact with people who are camping, the, the goal is to try to connect them to services, so they'll be equipped and trained to do just that. If, if we, you know, using citation as a last resort, we have specialty courts designed uh, for those who are cited for this very thing. And again, the ultimate goal is not so much jail time or incarceration or detention, but again, to connect with services. And so we do have laws, and those laws have to be observed from all of us, regardless of what our condition is. And we have to, uh, particularly when services are available, encourage people to take advantage of those services. Before we go, I want to ask, the Biden administration is also planning on putting significant funding toward infrastructure to fight climate change. Denver's goal of having 100 percent renewable energy by 2030 is even more ambitious than Colorado's statewide goal 2040. How can federal funding help with meeting renewable energy goals? Well, first, the more we can get people out of cars and into alternative modes of transportation, cleaner modes of transportation, that helps. Um, The proliferation of charging stations as more and more of the car dealers are 
committing to uh, electric vehicles or cleaner energy vehicles, that's critical. We don't want to be caught behind the eight ball with all these electric vehicles becoming more affordable to people and people buying them and we don't have charging stations. And so this bill uh, provides an, a lot of resources for us to build and install electric charging stations all over all over Denver. So I'm pretty excited about that as someone who one day hopes and plans to own an electric vehicle. I think that's a critical piece that I can take that off of my mind in terms of concern about where I would ultimately end up with uh, finding an electric vehicle charging station if I was the owner. I think that's the first barrier that keeps people from buying it other than just the cost. So it's, it's huge to help us combat. And then, of course, the other thing is just clean energy investments and creating a, hopefully a new uh, development block grant to bring it back to the energy efficiency block grants, which as a U.S. Conference of Mayor member, we've been pushing the administration and the federal government to do, will give us the resources to continue to implement these type of remedies. Mayor Hancock, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Take care. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock speaking with me on the phone after the U.S. Conference of Mayors meeting with President Joe Biden in Washington, D.C. Wednesday night. Colorado colleges have launched programs to help student-athletes with new NCAA rules that allow them to make money off their own brand for the first time. CPR's Dan Boyce reports. The University of Colorado has been right at the table with these so-called name, image, and likeness discussions for years. CU Athletic Director Rick George was appointed to the NCAA's working group on the topic in 2019. Not long after, CU launched this sort of pilot campaign called Buffs with a Brand. It helped athletes work through hypothetical branding scenarios with an eye toward their post-college career. They created a fictitious clothing brand or whatever they would want to eventually do in their life. That's Abby Shea, the Associate Director for Compliance in the CU Athletics Department. Buffs with a brand has now quickly shifted to being a very practical thing. The Supreme Court ruled student-athletes could be paid, and the NCAA followed suit. The CU program is optional for these young athletes, but it's intended to help them navigate this tricky new landscape. What kind of sponsorships can I accept? What might run afoul of my other eligibility requirements? What sort of sponsorships might I want to avoid? If you have aspirations to go pro in your sport, what do your actions right now, how do they affect that? Shea says CU will be using buffs with a brand as part of their recruitment efforts to show the school takes these new sponsorship rules seriously. For most athletes, though, sponsorships will likely be small perks on top of what they're already getting for playing a sport. You can eat free at my restaurant if you post Instagrams about our Wednesday deals. Or we'll give you running shoes if you sign autographs at our local running store. I don't think it's going to be world changing when it comes to collegiate athletics. Meanwhile, over at the U.S. Air Force Academy, the new rules change nothing for cadets. Their military contracts already prohibit sponsorships. What might this do to the Academy's recruitment efforts? Associate Athletic Director Troy Garnhart wrote in an email that it might raise questions for some athletes. Though the nation's military academies are already recruiting a particular subset of athletes anyway. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with how the new U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum in Colorado Springs is working to move past a challenging pandemic start and bring home the gold. I'm Avery Lill. You're with CPR News and KRCC.
CPR's financial backbone is built with support from the community. There are many different kinds of gifts that make an impact, including gifts of real estate. You can donate real estate that is owned outright or real estate with an existing mortgage. And the property can be located anywhere in the U.S. Your generosity will support the news and music you value. Explore the benefits of donating a gift of real estate on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. The new U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum in downtown Colorado Springs didn't get the grand unveiling the city hoped for. It opened last year during pandemic lockdowns. Now the Tokyo Olympics kick off in just over a week, and the museum is looking to rebound with a summer full of events. They're calling it their Colorado Grand Opening. Phil Lane is the museum's acting CEO. Phil, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you for having me. It has to be tough to open a museum during a pandemic. How has the museum adapted? Well, you're right about that, Avery. It was, uh, it was quite a challenge. We opened almost a year ago, last July 30th, uh, which was really right in the heart of the challenges we were all dealing with. And while we had done a lot of things pre-opening to prepare the museum to be a COVID-safe experience, I think it was still tough for people to get their arms around wanting to go to an indoor venue and, and spend time with other people. Um, so we slogged through the first uh, you know, seven or eight months while the pandemic was still kind of in full force. And as we started to come out uh, this past spring, we really put our heads together with the senior leadership of the museum. And we came up with the Colorado Grand Opening, which is we're in full swing right now and we'll run through Labor Day. You're also asking for $3 million from the federal stimulus money the city of Colorado Springs is receiving. $90 million has already been invested in the facility. Why ask for the additional $3 million? Well, a couple reasons. One, we had additional expense associated, as I mentioned, with, with uh, preparing the museum for COVID, primarily around two things, our RFID technology and some really important air handling systems that we put in. To, uh, to facilitate better airflow through the museum to you know, just enhance the safety features of the visitor experience. And then, as you mentioned, you know, we're not meeting our attendance numbers and our revenue numbers uh, through group sales, group events. I mean, most of those came to a screeching halt across all of the economy. And so those are important revenue lines for the museum. So like, like every other business, uh, every other museum across the country, every other business that was impacted by COVID, we were absolutely impacted. And it was with, with being a, a museum or a product that was brand new, um, we didn't have some of the legacy and nostalgia to lean on as well to, to give people the confidence to come to the museum. So we are doing everything we can to generate earned revenue. Our attendance numbers are improving. We feel good about that. Our pipeline of events that are occurring at the museum is improving as well. So we think we're going to navigate through these choppy waters, get through the summer, and then reposition the museum for 2022 to be a, a great success, an asset for for not just our community, but for the state of Colorado, for the United States. It's the United States Olympic Museum, after all, uh, and, and for the Olympic movement. So the museum has had to adapt to a lot of pandemic changes. There was also a sharp turn in leadership last month. The museum's board voted to part ways with the original CEO, Christopher Lydell, just a year after opening. We should note that you were the vice chair of that board. The museum has said it won't discuss that issue further, but Lydell was a big name coming in from the National Geographic and the Smithsonian Institution. How have you been managing morale at the museum? 
Well, we're, we're just doing everything we can to ramp up communication with the entire staff. So since I came in as acting CEO, the first thing we did was bring Pam Shockley back, who was our interim CEO prior to Chris Lydell. Pam is, is a consultant to the museum and working very closely with me and the senior leadership team on really on a daily basis. So uh, since we really jumped in, uh, in in sort of late May, I guess, we've had several all staff meetings. We're trying to be present at the museum. Uh, we're learning from the senior leadership team and all the way down uh, to, to everybody at the museum. We're soliciting input. Um, you know, everyone has ideas about how we can deliver a, a better visitor experience, how we can generate more revenue. So it's really just about opening communication lines as wide as we can and, and keeping everybody informed as to, you know, where we sit at the, at the museum, what we need to get accomplished over the next, you know, several weeks of, of this tourism season. Uh, and then we'll, we will engage with everybody uh, in the fall as we, as we prepare to launch into 2022. Colorado Springs is really doubling down on its athletic focus. In addition to the museum, there's also a brand new minor league soccer stadium and a hockey arena still under construction at the Colorado campus. How are these projects changing downtown Colorado Springs? Well, Avery, I mean, I I have lived here for, uh, I grew up here, I left for 11 years, but I've been back for almost 30. And it's just so exciting to see all of the energy and activity downtown. And, you know, you mentioned Widener Field and the Switchback Stadium and the Ropes and Arena on CC's campus, along with the museum. The opening of the bridge from the museum patio across to America, the beautiful park. All of these things are just super exciting. And they're venues, they're opportunities to bring people downtown and to experience what I think is a fantastic downtown. So, you know, when we when we read stories like 9,000 at the Switchbacks game the other night and we see our attendance ramping up, it's just exciting to be in downtown Colorado Springs these days. This whole southwest downtown urban renewal area is going to explode in the next seven to ten years. I mean, I think if you come back here for the 2028 games in, in L.A., this is going to be one of the most exciting you know, five, six, eight block uh, areas in the country to uh, watch, uh, you know, Olympic sports uh, with the museum right at the heart of all of that. And like you've been saying, this summer has been really busy for the museum with the Colorado Grand Opening. There have been workouts with Olympic athletes, breakdancing battles, autograph sessions. The Olympics themselves get underway in Tokyo next week. What special events does the museum have planned? The Olympics kickoff, as you mentioned, on Friday the 23rd for the opening ceremonies. We'll be having watch parties. We have, as you mentioned, athlete demonstrations. We will have uh, book signings. We're still in the planning stages of doing some potential trivia nights, movie nights, those kinds of things. Just anything Olympic-related to get folks down to the museum, get them excited about the games. These are going to be a unique games in Tokyo with no fans. So we're inviting all the fans of the Olympics to come down and and gather safely at the museum and in our plaza to enjoy and and get into the Olympic spirit. And, you know, the last year and a half, it didn't really go like anyone had planned. But in the years going forward, how do you see this museum being a part of the community? And what's your kind of vision for that? Well, I mean, I I think it's, again, I think it's an asset for our country, for our state, for Colorado Springs, 
the reception of, of the museum amongst the athlete community has been absolutely fantastic. We expect to have athletes at the museum on a very regular basis. Uh, we, we want people to come down and just not know who they might run into that day at the museum. And we have, you know, we have three or four athletes on our staff, Olympians, uh, medal-winning Olympians on our staff. So you're you're going to see them on a very regular basis. But we we hope to have we hope to have many more. It's just a it's a really fantastic museum. It's a history museum. It's an art museum. It's a science museum. It's a sports museum. It really is a great place for anyone to come at any age and and have an experience where they're going to walk out and and just say, wow, that was really enjoyable. I am really looking forward to seeing it. Phil, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. And thank you for your time. Phil Wayne is the acting CEO of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum. It's getting more difficult to camp in the national forest land around Crested Butte. The Forest Service is limiting campsites to protect the area, but as CPR's Nathaniel Minor reports, that could have a big impact on the local workforce. Jonathan Civitelli shows off his campsite like someone else might give a tour of their home. Had the fire pit, had the little dish station, coffee table. We're about 15 minutes away from Crested Butte in the Gunnison National Forest. Got some natural furniture <laughs> with, the, with the stumps and whatnot. And for a good stretch of this spring and summer, this national forest is Civitelli's home. The 28-year-old from Alabama teaches skiing in the winter and works in a local pizza place in the summer. He and some friends decided to camp out to save money, and because it's just really nice. I'm enjoying it, just nice and quiet, reading a little bit, you know, hanging out, going camps, and go on hikes, go little runs every now and then, you know. Civitelli is not alone. The Gunnison Valley is a beautiful and desirable place, which makes housing scarce and expensive. Service workers like Civitelli have camped in the National Forest for years sometimes because they like it, and sometimes because they have no other choice. But changes are coming. What'd you just pull out of there? That was a rusty nail. Jake Scott with the Crested Butte Conservation Corps is picking up trash in a campsite just a few miles away. You know, little plastic parts of people's cars that have broken off. Some candy wrapper over here. The valleys around Crested Butte have been free to camp in for years, with few rules governing where and how that happened. Scott says the area was overrun during the pandemic last year. People just started putting up tents wherever they fit and driving over delicate wildflowers. People were having a great time. You know, it was like absolutely good vibes and everybody was like having a good time. But uh, it was like way more people than this area can accommodate. So the Forest Service is now limiting where people can camp to built-out, designated sites only. Matt McCombs is the district ranger for the Forest Service. Campers will be required to stay in designated sites with Forest Service-established fire rings denoted by a Forest Service universal camping symbol. More tourists, fewer places to camp, and no affordable housing could hurt local workers like Jonathan Civitelli the most. But McComb says the National Forest should not be used as housing, regardless of the new crush of visitors. Bottom line is that uh, it's not a sustainable solution for the the housing challenges that we're facing in these mountain communities. The town of Crested Butte recently declared its housing crisis an emergency. That will allow it to speed up affordable housing projects. It also just bought a former bed and breakfast to house workers. But those efforts could take years, and people need housing now. The lack of places to live is leading to labor shortages. 
Some businesses in town are closing a few days a week because they can't find staff. Kylina Falzone runs two restaurants in Crested Butte. It's the worst than ever because there's like, if you look in the paper today, there was three rentals and over two and a half pages of jobs. She's been pushing town leaders to find more immediate solutions, like allowing locals to camp in town. And I was like, you have to do this now. You can't wait or you're going to lose everybody. Town officials haven't allowed camping on public land in town yet, though they are talking about it. They have recently allowed camping on private land, though. So the most immediate solution to Crested Butte's housing crisis appears to be in the hands of its residents. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. An obsession with the Rocky Mountains drives Heather Mateu Sappenfield to write. An obsession not just with the topography, but with the people of the Rockies who have to navigate economic, social, and racial disparities. Sappenfield lives in Vail. Her collection of short stories is called Lyrics for Rockstars. She spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis in January. Heather, welcome to the show. Hi, Andrea. Thank you. You picked a passage to read from the short story, The Oldest Living Man in America. Could you set it up for us and then read that passage? Oh, absolutely. Um, This is the final story in the collection, and the collection is actually dedicated to my grandfather, who was for a time the oldest living man in America at 111. Wow. Uh, Yeah. And um, But this scene is a 109-year-old man who is watching Neil Armstrong take his first steps on the moon while remembering his boyhood in early Denver, specifically his father leaving to fight for the Confederacy in the Civil War um, with the rest of his family, though he didn't believe in slavery. The oldest living man in America. My father trotted away on a fine bay horse in the settling dust of a stagecoach. Mama said she watched till a plane swallowed him. Two months later, a letter arrived. He'd been assigned to an artillery unit along with his brothers. Mama took heart that he was not in the infantry nor the militia. He wrote that they had sequestered his horse first thing, as well as his brother's steeds. He said his father was in the militia along with nearly every man from the county, gentlemen and crackers alike. He said the McNichol men celebrated a grand reunion. By the time I was old enough to fully comprehend this letter, it had grown lacy and its creases were almost air. It was the only letter she got. She wrote but did not tell him he had a son. For the better part of my life, I gnawed on this omission. Then illness stole Eulalie, and I stood gaping at my own life's contradictions. Hmm, Beautiful. I noticed that uh, in a lot of your stories, you intermingle history. Um, You know, this battle, and then also um, the first man on the moon. And um, I wonder why history is so critical to your writing. Oh, I just think we are all of us woven into history and setting and that no matter how separated we feel from it, it affects us. I mean, even in this moment here when I'm having this interview with you, the histories of what's been around us, what's maybe gone on in radio before, what's gone on with COVID and how we're conducting this interview, all those things come into play along with the personal histories of what has happened this morning with each of us and and how they blend together. Um, And so I love to 
bring together the history of this area that I love so well as a Colorado native and then create a rich, complex character and and have them meet that. Usually some sort of a history that we may have not even be aware or, or readers may not even have been aware occurred in Colorado. I love that aha moment too, where you realize, oh, um, I didn't know that went on here. Mm. Um, and, and the same thing for the character is having that sort of aha moment um, where they are growing. So I love to bridge that, having the character sort of have that aha moment at the same time as the reader. One author said of your collection, Heather Mateus Sappenfield has drawn a map of Colorado and written a legend that describes the inner workings of people's hearts. Is there something uniquely challenging about living in the Rockies? <laughs> well, I think that um, I think this has always been a beautiful but a challenging place to live for multiple reasons. I mean, if living in the mountains themselves, um, the climate for years was so difficult. Um, and, you know, we were settled by mining and then railroads and eventually, you know, roads and, and things like that. So I think that that in itself is difficult. The modern day problems of it are, you know, like where I live, there's wonderful tourism and it's a great place to come ski, especially now for people to be outdoors. But, um, you know, my husband's a teacher and I'm a writer. And I mean, I think we have one of the highest suicide rates in right. the country. So it is also a challenging place to live um, as far as stress of just making ends meet. And we have an entire immigrant culture here. Our high schools are over 50% Latino. That is also something that goes on here that makes it beautiful, but also can be make it a difficult place to live. Not that there's any culture clash in that way, but just that we have so many layers up here and we're all, you know, trying to make it and create create a beautiful life in these places. Yeah. The Rocky Mountains, as we said, and adventures in the Rockies are a theme in a lot of your stories. One in mm -hmm. particular is one called Thinking's Deadly. It's about a woman <laughs> whose husband dies in an ice climbing accident. Her family asks her why her husband was so irresponsible, um, but she doesn't see it that way. And in Vail, where you live, you're surrounded by people who take risks, who long for this adrenaline rush. How do you see that? Well, I mean, that's... I mean, even skiing, we lose people skiing all the time. I mean, p sport and adventure, I think we all strive to have something that makes us feel alive. And it can be an external adventure like skiing or ice climbing or whatever that may be, or it can be something that you're working on internally, right? And so you, you're trying to get through that. It just depends upon where you are within yourself during that time. I think that where I live up here in Vail and in Colorado, we, we tend to have a lot of people that come that have the mindset of wanting to push the envelope physically um, just because of what, what it offers as far as recreation and things you can do with, you know, whether it's ice climbing, skiing, backcountry skiing, rock climbing, mountain biking, um, you name it. You know, Colorado can offer that. Um, but you don't necessarily have to go to a place like this even to have those experiences either. So I hope that the stories also speak beyond this place to people who who are seeking those things around the whole country and the world. 
This is Colorado Matters. If you're just joining us, we're talking to author Heather Mateu Sappenfield. She's the author of a new collection of short stories. It's called Lyrics for Rock Stars. And I want to talk about children in your stories. Um, a lot of them um, take a major role in your stories, and um, they're keen observers of their families. I felt like they almost seem to know too much. And your first story, Indian Prayers, told from a young girl's perspective. Her mother tells her that her dad has left the family for another woman. Why tell this from a child's perspective? You know, it's an interesting, these are, these are the choices an author makes, right? And, and we, the collection is divided into two sections, Songs of Innocence and Songs of Wisdom. And so much of who we are as our experiences as children form who we become later in life. So the stories progress sort of chronologically in that way, um, kind of looking at what exactly is innocence and what really is wisdom, what, in, with what we gain as we move through adulthood, coming to the ends of our lives. Is that really the wisdom? Um, and so it's, I begin from the child's perspective because I wanted to move through from that place all the way through the spectrum of life, but also because it, when you are with children in stories and you're reading about children in stories as an adult, inherently there's an irony in that you know more than they do. Um, right. we, we, we have that quote unquote wisdom, right? And so we're judging and watching and experiencing these things with them. Um, and, and we're worried for them, you know, we're, we're thinking. And so there's this extra layer to the story when it's told by a child that is naive and moving along and learning about life and losing that naivety. You've said you really love children. And, and I wonder mm -hmm. what what is it that makes them play such a prominent role in your stories and um, what you're trying to say about them as, as young people? Well, I think what, what it really comes down to, I think... <laughs> I think all of us are still in many ways holding on to that child inside mm -hmm. and to that teen inside. And so as I would write about those children or teens moving through ages, um, I'm hoping that the reader can really identify or maybe not identify and have to hold at arm's length what's going on. Um, and, and draw out that aspect of themselves, too, to connect at that level with the story. I want to go back to the story, Thinking's Deadly, uh, where a woman's husband dies in an ice climbing accident. Um, mm -hmm. And Leah, the main character in the story, has a close encounter with a bear that leads <laughs> to this catharsis. And I wonder how the bear made it into the story and what its role was exactly. Well... I am. I have done many things in my life. I'm an outdoorsy person, and thus I, I live here, and I've been a ski instructor and raced mountain bikes and, and done all of these things. And that actually came from all of these stories have roots in my life. I either experienced them or I heard about them or I saw them or there was some part, aspect of history that I experienced, and I went, oh, my gosh, you know, and that changed how I looked at something. Um, so in this case, I had a friend who lost a husband in an ice climbing accident, mm. and she was so stoic 
that it really stuck with me, that loss. Um, but then in conjunction, a couple of years later, I was literally um, trail running behind my house and a storm had come in and I was running downhill and I, I was just hell-bent for election and the wind was blowing the trees sideways and I just happened out the corner of my eye to see a huge, huge bear mm. running perpendicular to my route. And it just went up and I, I stopped and I watched it go up and over the trail. And if I had not stopped, we would have intersected. Um, and that, has, that stays with you, <laughs> watching a bear running full tilt. Um, they're fast. <laughs> right, yeah. I imagine. You wrote this collection of short stories over a period of 20 years, and sometimes short story collections can feel to the reader incomplete or not satisfying. But just to wrap up, yours feel very whole. What do you like about writing short stories, the genre? Oh, they're so hard to write. I find them the most challenging, and I think that's what I love about it. You come into a short story right in the middle of things with a character and you're going to, you can know you're going to head into the crux of something and i love that you can read them in one sitting you can you can come it's perfect before bed and you know and and then kind of let it marinate when you're finished i love the economy of language that every single sentence needs to be moving that story forward but also advancing the theme and advancing the theme of the whole collection i just love the beautiful little concise thing that a short story is. Heather, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrea. Heather Mateus Sappenfield has written a collection of short stories called Lyrics for Rockstars. She spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis in January. Thank you for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Avery Lill. With special thanks to Dan Boyce. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.